there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It was 1898 when Swedish immigrant Olaf Oman first unearthed the Kensington Runestone, a massive slab covered in strange Scandinavian runes from beneath a tree on his Minnesota farm. Initially dismissed as a hoax, the Kensington Runestone continued to turn up throughout the 20th century as a small, fervent band of scholars, academics, and historians staked their careers on claims that the stone was genuine. If the stone was real, then it would indicate that Viking explorers set foot on American soil over a century before Christopher Columbus's famed 1492 expedition to the New World, which at the time was the predominant theory regarding the European colonization of the continent. In short, the Kensington Runestone would have proved that America's very conception of its own history is false and served as a major point of pride for Scandinavian settlers in the upper Midwestern United States. It's been over a century since the runestone was first found. In that time, it has been linked to fateful Viking expeditions that journeyed across the American Midwest, as well as more outlandish conspiracies involving secretive monks, the Knights Templar, and even the fabled Holy Grail. Could any of it be true? Or is the long-standing legend all the result of an elaborate hoax concocted by conniving farmers and perpetuated by opportunistic historians? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parkast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the Kensington Runestone, a controversial artifact that seems to chronicle an expedition made by Scandinavian Vikings to the North American continent in the 14th century. If the runestone is real and that voyage really did happen, it would have changed the nation's understanding of how the continent was settled and given a new claim to fame for Scandinavian settlers across the country. The validity of the runestone has been a topic of debate ever since it was first discovered in 1898. 
Despite being disproven as a hoax numerous times, the runestone continues to turn up in the public consciousness as a genuine artifact. In short, it is one of the most controversial archaeological discoveries ever found in America. Today, we're going to examine the theory that the runestone really was a hoax and try to deduce the motivations that might have led the men responsible to carve a fake inscription, bury the stone, and then play at having miraculously discovered it. Then we'll examine the long history of the runestone's public reputation and determine whether historian Yalmer Holland really believed that the runestone was authentic or if he was just pushing that theory in order to enrich himself. Finally, accepting that the runestone is authentic, we'll look at some of the wilder theories regarding the Viking expedition, its purpose, and what happened to it. And we'll delve into some of the more unsubstantiated theories that go so far as to link the runestone to the centuries-long quest by the Knights Templar to protect and preserve the Holy Grail. In today's world of camera phones and instant uploads, it isn't the most noteworthy thing for an elaborate prank to go viral and be seen by millions of people across the world. To reach such an audience in 1898, however, would have required quite a bit of effort. The first question one has to consider when looking at the possibility that the Kensington runestone is a hoax is why? Why would someone go to the trouble to painstakingly carve ancient runes into a huge stone slab and then bury the thing so that they could pretend to discover it? To answer, we first need to look at the context of America's demographics at the end of the 19th century. Between 1820 and 1920, more than 2.1 million Scandinavians emigrated to the United States. These newcomers hailed mostly from Sweden and Norway. They were largely lower-class families who sought to escape heightening economic and social stratification, political corruption, and agricultural failures that led to food shortages. In the still-untamed American Midwest, these pilgrims found large swaths of fertile, unoccupied prairie that could be cut back and plowed into ideal farmlands. Many of them settled in rural areas and founded their own farms, towns, and communities. Among these settlements was Kensington, Minnesota. Though the town was officially chartered in 1887, Scandinavian homesteaders had lived in the area since at least 1858. As the year 1892 approached, the Scandinavian immigrant community began to express an air of resentment toward the broader culture of their newly adopted homeland. 1892 would mark the 400th anniversary of when Christopher Columbus discovered America for Europe. The rise of Columbus as an American mythological figure was actually a recent phenomenon at this time. The first half of the 19th century saw an influx of Italian immigrants to America. These Italians felt a sense of disconnect with their new home, and as a result, a number of Italian writers began publishing glorified accounts of Columbus's story that emphasized his discovery of America. In doing so, Italian immigrants to America were able to claim a piece of America's history and intertwine it with their own. But by the end of the 19th century, however, there was some pushback on the Columbus mythos. 
Norwegians and Swedes had long believed in their own historical account of the world, which stated that Vikings, such as Leif Erikson, had traveled to America as early as 1000 CE. Scandinavian immigrants felt that their history was also intertwined with the Americas and that the connection was being ignored. So as the country collectively prepared to celebrate 1892 as the 400th anniversary of Columbus's journey, there was some pushback from the Scandinavian immigrant community. They wanted to prove once and for all that Vikings had played a role in ancient American history. Some may have even gone so far as to make their own historical proof of Viking activity in America. Which brings us to Olaf Omen, the man who discovered the runestone and who may have created it. Olaf, born 1854 in Helsingland, Sweden, moved to America in his mid-twenties to pursue his dream of owning his own farm. He worked as a carpenter and mill worker until he was able to afford a farm in Kensington in 1890. We discussed Olaf's perceived innocence in our last episode. When the runestone was first publicly scrutinized, few believed that Olaf could have had a hand in the hoax on account of the fact that he was uneducated, and thus incapable of concocting such a plot. But this perception of Olaf was wrong from the start. Olaf received a general education in Sweden before moving to America, and that schooling would have included some lessons on Scandinavian runes similar to what was carved into the stone. In fact, Dalekarlian runes, the same dialect of rune used for the stone, originated in the Swedish province of Dalarna, which was directly adjacent to Helsingland, where Olaf was born and raised. We also know that Olaf owned at least three books on Scandinavian rune tables, and the two of these books were lent to him by Sven Vogelblad, a schoolteacher in Kensington who lived with Olaf for a short time in the 1890s. Vogelblad passed away a year before Olaf discovered the rune stone in 1898, but there is reason to suspect he may have a role in his story. Born in 1829, Fogelblad trained as a minister and pastor before he left the church and moved to America in 1869. He lived as a vagabond, supporting himself as a schoolteacher and occasionally writing for radical Swedish-American publications. Though the reason isn't clear, Fogelblad's falling out with the Swedish church seemed to accompany a general rejection of all popular academia. Among the Swedish-American community in the Midwest, Fogelblad was known as a nonconformist, a joker, and a heavy drinker. Also notable here is that Fogelblad was a known acquaintance of Klaus Johan Jungström, a famous expert in runes at that time. Fogelblad lived with Olaf in the last years of his life. Olaf, who had a reputation as a hater of academics, seemed to get along with the oddball Fogelblad, and it is from that unlikely friendship that the hoax of the runestone was born. The idea of two men carving the runestone isn't new. Some of the earliest examinations of the stone after its discovery showed that it was likely carved by two men, one who was right-handed, and one who was left-handed. Olaf was right-handed. Fogelblad was also right-handed. But John P. Gran, one of Olaf's neighbors in Kensington, was left-handed. 
According to the infamous Grand Tapes, recorded decades later by John P. Grand's son, it was Gran who helped Olaf carve the stone. The possible involvement of Gran would also seem to point to a broader conspiracy. There are a number of other actors in this story who were in Kensington at the time who may have played a role in the hoax. There was Andrew Anderson, Olaf's neighbor, who was believed to have been a former student of Fogelblad. Then there was J.P. Hedberg, the man who wrote down the first transcription of the runestone and who sent it to the local Swedish-American newspaper. Hedberg's original letter has quite a few discrepancies from what's actually written on the stone. This fact has led some to believe that Hedberg's letter isn't a transcription at all. It is actually an early draft of the runestone text that Fogelblad wrote out before he had Olaf carve the stone. So the implication here is that Olaf and Fogelblad hatched a plan to, for some reason or another, create a fake artifact which Olaf would then discover and present to the world as authentic. They enlisted the help of some close neighbors, carved the stone, and buried it under a poplar tree. After Fogelblad died in 1897, Olaf dug up the tree and presented it as a new find. But the question that still remains here is why? The evidence we've discussed only proves that Olaf could have been behind the stone. There's little indication as to why he would go to the trouble. Some four decades after the discovery, an acquaintance of Olaf's named Henry H. Hendrickson recalled that he had once heard Olaf discussing a desire to, quote, bother the brains of the learned. In short, Olaf wanted to create some hoax that would befuddle the academic community. Based on that statement, if it's true, Olaf may have been a 19th century equivalent of an internet troll stirring up controversy for its own sake. If that was his intent, and again, it's a big if, then he got his wish. But perhaps even Olaf couldn't imagine a historian like Hjalmar Holland taking his little hoax and validating it all the way to the famed Smithsonian Museum. It is possible, if not likely, that the Kensington Runestone Saga actually involves two separate swindlers. Up next, we'll discuss Holland's role in this whole affair and determine whether he was a believer or just an opportunist. Now, back to the story. The Kensington Runestone made little impression when it was first unearthed and shared with the public at the end of the 19th century. As we discussed in our last episode, a group of Norwegian professors asserted in 1899, a year after the stone's discovery, that it was undoubtedly a forgery. The stone was returned to Olaf, who left it on his porch for eight years. This apparent dismissal might hurt the theory that Olaf had a hand in crafting the stone as part of a hoax. Regardless, word still got around and eventually brought Yalmer Holand to Olaf's door. This is one of the fascinating things about the Kensington runestone, assuming that it really was a hoax. Yalmer Holand had no known connection to Olaf prior to meeting him in 1907, beyond a shared Scandinavian heritage. So if the runestone was a hoax, then Holland either fell for it so completely that he dedicated his life to proving a lie, or Holland independently decided to perpetuate the hoax in order to raise his own status in life. 
Whichever is true, Holand is the sole reason we're still discussing the Kensington runestone today. From the moment Holand became embroiled with the runestone story, he attempted to profit from it. After Olaf gifted Holand the stone in 1907, Holand successfully urged the Minnesota Historical Society to examine, verify, and report on the Kensington runestone. Though this report was supposed to be co-signed by esteemed academics and thus above reproach, Holand actually wrote a large amount of the report himself. After the report was published and the runestone was technically verified as accurate, Holand attempted to sell the stone to the Historical Society for $6,000, which would equate to a six-figure sum today. So, Holand pestered the Society into signing the report, despite the fact that he had written most of the report himself. They knew the report likely wasn't completely accurate, but they risked their own reputations by signing it anyway. Then, Holand tried to sell the stone to that same group of people. What's more, Holand wrote to one member of the society, Dr. N. H. Winchell, and stated that it was, quote, not so much a price upon the stone itself as a compensation for my contribution to American history. Holand always claimed to be motivated by a sincere desire to raise awareness of Scandinavian settlers' role in America's history. But it's not a stretch to say there was a fair bit of ego involved. The thing is, though, Holand's arrogance worked. Without it, he may not have had the drive to continue pushing for the runestone's acceptance. The historical society did end up buying the runestone from Olaf, whom they considered to be still the rightful owner. Olaf accepted the offer of $10 for the runestone and went back to his farm. Holand, though, was undeterred. Despite a disastrous tour of Europe in which he presented the stone to several European rune experts who all declared it a forgery, Holand stayed committed to his mission of verifying the stone throughout the 1920s and 30s. This could lend to the argument that Holand wasn't a con man. He'd failed to extort the historical society, and if he really was in this for the money, logic would dictate he would have abandoned the stone and moved on to some other venture. But Holand made the stone his obsession. That's not to say he didn't continue his efforts to profit off the stone. Records from 1928 show that Holand actually managed to sell the stone to a group of Minnesota businessmen for $2,000. It's unclear how Holand regained ownership of the stone from the Historical Society, but one can imagine that Holand had gotten quite good at pestering them by this point. The stone was displayed in the city of Alexandria, Minnesota's Chamber of Commerce, the same city that hosts the stone to this day. Holand used the money to fund more research trips and publications about the stone's authenticity. His desperation to prove the stone's legitimacy is clear in his writings from that time. The firm faith in the runestone's authenticity stands in stark contrast to the unsourced or downright inaccurate claims Holand makes. One questionable argument is Holand's proposed route for the Viking explorers. You may recall from last week how Holand proposed that the expedition broke off from Greenland, which had been the Vikings' original destination, and made it all the way to the Hudson Bay into the Hudson River. 
They reached the Red River via Lake Winnipeg and eventually ended up near Lake Cormorant, close to the future site of Kensington, where the stone was discovered. All told, the journey Holland proposed would have taken these Vikings across 2,000 miles of unknown lakes, rivers, and streams. Given the threat of unfamiliar wildlife or even hostile Native Americans, it's unclear why these Vikings would take such a risk without first returning home to gather more supplies for their journey. Holand's linguistic arguments were also fairly flimsy. From the outset, experts in Old Norse had pointed out specific words and phrases in the runestone's inscription that didn't match with the lexicon of the time period. In the 1930s, Holand and his acolytes spent weeks digging through dusty medieval archives all over the world desperate for evidence of a word here or a sentence there to prove these experts wrong. But what's more likely? A group of 14th-century Vikings suddenly took on a whole new mode of vocabulary just before they carved the one log of their journey in stone? Or a self-taught rune scholar made a few slip-ups while trying to appropriate Old Norse runes? Holin's greatest shows of evidence were the infamous Moor stones. These were small stones with chiseled holes in them that could be found along the lake and river shores of Minnesota and other northern Midwestern states. Holland contended that these stones were proof that Vikings had traveled through the region and used the stones to dock their boats along the river. However, the Minnesota Historical Society eventually showed that these chiseled stones were commonly crafted by locals. They were used to tether boats to shore or hold dynamite to blast away larger rocks, but by 19th century farmers, not 14th century Vikings. Holand lived on a farm in Wisconsin for most of his life and almost certainly would have been aware of this practice. The stones were once his key piece of evidence, but now it seemed that even he knew they didn't prove his claim. As was the case with Olaf, we're seeing plenty of evidence that Holand may have pushed a theory he knew to be false. He certainly had no problem inserting his own theories into the established narrative in order to fit his agenda, regardless of what the facts said. But what's less clear is why he'd dedicate his life to such an endeavor. Did he want to believe in the stones so badly that he linked his professional credibility to a hoax? Or was he just giving the people what they wanted? Ever since the existence of the rune stone was first widely circulated in the early 1900s, the larger Scandinavian community had clung to it as a special object, proof that their ancestors had walked on the land they now called home. Holand had expressed in the past that he was driven to prove the runestone was real, not just by loyalty to his heritage, but by a sense of community with his fellow Scandinavian Americans. As we discussed last week, Holand's efforts eventually led the Smithsonian to put the runestone on display in 1948. At face value, this may seem like the fruits of Holand's many, many decades of labor to share the legacy of the stone with the world. But... The real story isn't that clear-cut. Yes, the Smithsonian Museum did display the Kensington runestone from 1948 to 1949. And yes, a museum official was quoted by National Geographic magazine as saying that the stone was, quote, probably the most important object yet found in North America, end quote. 
But other Smithsonian officials were actually pretty quick to contextualize that statement. Even as the stone drew hundreds of guests into the museum, the Smithsonian's official stance was that none of its staff or researchers were expert runologists, and thus the Smithsonian was not adequately qualified to label the stone as authentic. You'd think that a museum with the Smithsonian's resources could afford a rune specialist to help them out there. They probably could, but they didn't by choice. In 1955, six years after the runestone left the Smithsonian, the museum officially endorsed the statements of Johannes Bronsted, a Danish archaeologist who concluded that the stone was not from the 14th century. So how did they justify presenting the stone to the public even after they'd accepted that the stone was likely a fake? From the museum's point of view, real or not, the runestone represented a vital piece of Scandinavian-American cultural identity. Its value as a 19th-century artifact transcended the question of whether or not it was actually a 14th-century artifact. Regardless of the runestone's authenticity, it had an intrinsic value to the generations of Scandinavian-Americans who believed in it, and thus, it was worthy of its own consideration as an artifact. This brings us to a key question regarding this mystery. After 120 years of cultural importance, does the Kensington runestone lose its cultural value if it is a fake? Regardless of the intent of the men who carved it, the stone served to define at least one man's life, Yalmer Holland. It also became a valued cultural artifact for Scandinavian Americans in Minnesota. After it was taken off display at the Smithsonian in 1949, the runestone returned to Alexandria, where it was eventually displayed in its own museum, the Runestone Museum. That the runestone is still in a museum today, despite all the evidence of its inauthenticity, is its real legacy. We have talked a lot about the evidence that would seem to prove that the Kensington runestone is a fake. But what if Holland really was right all this time? Coming up, we'll consider the implications of the Kensington runestone being an authentic Viking artifact. Now the conclusion to our mystery. Over most of the 20th century, the belief in the validity of the Kensington runestone shifted back and forth. Despite numerous instances in which professional academics stated that the stone was not a real Viking relic, believers like Yalmer Holland kept the stone in the public consciousness. Holland's effort to prove the stone's authenticity eventually led it to be featured at the Smithsonian Museum and, finally, the Kensington Runestone Museum in Alexandria, which opened in 1958. There's a lot of evidence that indicates the stone was a hoax, carved centuries after it was believed to exist. But in this final section, we're going to consider the possibility that the stone was authentic and try to deduce what could have led the Vikings so deep inland back in the 14th century. Naturally, we should start with the transcription of the stone itself. Eight Swedes and 22 Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland westward. We had our camp by two rocky islets one day's journey north of this stone. We were out fishing one day. When we came home, we found ten men red with blood and dead. AVM, save us from evil. 
We have ten by the sea to look after our ships, fourteen days' journey from the island, 1362. Assuming this is an authentic diary of a real event that happened in 1362, let's break down the suspected journey. Last episode, we discussed the theory that the Viking journey began as a mission to find defected Christians who had fled to Greenland. King Magnus Eriksson of Sweden appointed a trusted law officer named Paul Knudsen to the mission. Knudsen set out from Sweden with a crew. When they couldn't find any trace of the missing man in Greenland, they expanded the scope of their journey and headed to Vinland, which was part of modern-day Canada. Norse scholars from around the same period had recently compiled a text on the history of Viking exploration, which included some discussion of Vinland. Thus, it is feasible that Knudsen may have had some familiarity with this region. Knudsen's Vikings searched the Gulf of St. Lawrence near modern-day East Canada before embarking on the previously mentioned foray into Hudson Bay, down the rivers, and all the way to Minnesota. It is also possible that they took the St. Lawrence River through the Great Lakes all the way to Duluth in current Minnesota. Then they abandoned their boats and made their way to the Kensington area on foot. In his 1555 book, Historia de Gentibus, Swedish writer Ulaus Magnus described a visit to St. Halvard's Cathedral in Oslo, Norway. There, he encountered two small boats made from the skins of wild animals suspended from the cathedral wall. He came to learn that they'd been taken by King Håkon's fleet when it, quote, passed the coast of Greenland. It's a stretch, but Native Americans did traditionally use animal hides to build boats. It could indicate that Knudsen's Vikings used Native American boats from the area that is now the northern United States and Canada to return home. Some runestone defenders think that the ten men red with blood and dead were victims of an attack by Native Americans. If so, the survivors could have tried to flee back to the Atlantic Ocean, only to get lost along the way. Of course, this then raises another question. If the Vikings were attacked by Native Americans, why on earth would they take the time to chisel their message onto a stone and bury it before fleeing the area? There are more recent translations of the runestone's inscription that seem to revise the phrase exploration journey to something like journey of acquisition. That difference is significant. The Kensington runestone, if real, may simply be a remnant of a land claim. The Vikings created the runestone as a marker of their claim on the land in the Kensington area and left it behind with an intent to return later. Under this theory, the stone's existence makes a little bit more sense. The purpose of the stone may have been to serve both as a warning and as a marker to let others know that the land was claimed. If true, the Vikings' priorities seem a little out of order. Just wait, the more stones fit into this theory too. The original theory was that the Vikings used the stones to tether their boats, but they could have also been a form of primitive breadcrumbs, marking a trail the Vikings could use to get back to the land they had claimed if they ever returned to North America. It's also possible that the Vikings left something else behind. 
the Mandan tribe, located around the Upper Missouri River region, had certain members that had blonde hair. Holland believed these blonde Native Americans were the descendants of fair-haired Vikings and the Native Americans they met in the 14th century. But again, this is all speculation, and the conclusions rely on leaps of logic. Our current understanding of genetics paints a much more complex picture than the one imagined by Holland. Lighter hair can be carried as a recessive trait or come about as a random genetic mutation. Gaps in logic notwithstanding, one has to wonder why so many people would promote fake evidence of a Viking presence in the Midwest. Geologist Scott Wolter may have come to a possible answer. He used technology to date the runestone to the medieval times and put forth a titillating theory about the expedition that fills in a lot of blanks. Wolter identified the dialect of the inscription as likely originating from Gotland, a small island off the coast of Sweden in the Baltic Sea. In the 14th century, Gotland was a primary center for the Cistercian monks. This order of monks, commonly known as the White Monks, was founded to adhere more strictly to the rule of St. Benedict, which was kind of like a lifestyle guide for abbey-dwelling monks. Now, the link from the runestone to the Cistercian monks may not indicate a conclusion on its own. The order was based in Europe, and there's no evidence that any of these monks crossed the ocean to the New World. But what is noteworthy here is that the Cistercian monks have been affiliated with the Knights Templar. This was an order of European knights that originated in the 12th century on a mandate from Pope Honorius II to defend the Holy Land and protect pilgrims during the Crusades. The most famous, though unconfirmed, legend associated with the Knights Templar was that they recovered and became the stewards of the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus Christ drank from at the Last Supper. The Templars operated as an incredibly powerful international organization of warriors, traders, and bankers for nearly two centuries. But in the early 1300s, King Philip of France, who was heavily in debt to the Templars, issued an order for the knights to be decimated. Under the king's pressure, Pope Clement V abolished the order. Most of the remaining knights were absorbed into other military outfits in Europe at the time. But interestingly, the Grail was never recovered. If the Templars really did have the Grail, there is a theory that after the order was disbanded, a smaller cabal of former Templar knights spirited the object away for safekeeping. In his 2009 History Channel documentary, Holy Grail in America, Scott Walter submits compelling evidence that a subset of former Templars banded with Norse Vikings and traveled to America on a mission to hide the Holy Grail from their enemies in Europe. Walter proposes that the Templars planned to use the perceived value of the Grail as a cornerstone with which to rebuild their order from the American continent. With the help from some advisors in the Cistercian monk order, the continent would be christened as New Jerusalem. We know that sounds like a bit of a stretch, but while studying the inscriptions in the runestone under a low-angle light in his lab, Walter was able to catalog tiny details in the runes that had previously gone unnoticed. These included 
small punch marks and short strokes that altered the shape of some letters and the dialect of the inscription. It was this new insight used in the language on the stone that first led Walter to connect it to Gotland and the Cistercian monks. Cistercians used to double-date important markers and documents to make sure dates couldn't be easily altered. To do so, a writer would carve a date plainly and then repeat the date in a code using special characters from a medieval rune chart called the Easter Table. This chart was commonly used to identify Easter Sunday in any given year, but it could be repurposed to date certain literary artifacts with numeric symbols. Walter noticed three symbols on the runestone's inscription seemed to be isolated by that same inscriber and crossed in places that didn't match up with the symbols around it. When Walter charted these isolated runes in sequence on the Easter table, it produced the number 1362. The Kensington runestone could have thus been double-dated, and it suddenly seemed less likely that Olaf Omen or any of the other suspected forgers would have known the trick of double-dating the stone. More, the new markings that Walter found transformed some letters into symbols that had never been seen before in Old Swedish. In particular, there was a hooked X that didn't track with any known Swedish characters of the time. But Walter had an explanation for that, too. This hooked X, according to Walter, bore similarities to a symbol associated with the Freemasons, a shadowy fraternal organization that has long been associated with the Knights Templar. And the Templars are more linked to potential early history on the American continent than one might think. The Mi'kmaq people of Nova Scotia tell legends of a man who traveled to their shores across the ocean on the backs of whales. This is believed to be Henry Sinclair, a nobleman with ties to Scotland and Norway, though he likely took a boat. After the Templars disbanded in the early 14th century, some joined the army of Robert the Bruce, a Scottish freedom fighter who was closely associated with the Sinclairs. As the theory goes, Henry Sinclair, born in 1345, learned from these former Templars about the plot to smuggle the Grail across the ocean and set out in search of it in 1398. Not much is confirmed about Sinclair's life, though the Mi'kmaq people have a legend of a powerful man who held a court near coastal North Mountain, near Cape Blomidon. The concept of holding court as we know it doesn't track with Native American customs of the time, so it's possible that this person was actually Sinclair. It's worth noting that the Mi'kmaq flag bears resemblance to the Red Cross Templar's battle flag, which might mean the Mi'kmaqs were inspired by Templars when creating their own sigil. The Mi'kmaqs are believers in Sinclair's visit, and their stories describe Sinclair building his own island and planting his own trees on it. The island in question seems to be Oak Island, located in the Mahone Bay off the southern coast of Nova Scotia. The oak trees on this island are not indigenous, which does point to someone planting trees there a long time ago. The circumstantial evidence continued. In 1795, a group of young boys came across an underground shaft layered every 10 feet with oak planks lashed together with coconut fiber. The shaft went down 90 feet. At 90 feet, 
An inscribed stone read that a treasure was buried 30 feet further down. But 30 feet down, excavators found a booby trap. Water flooded the shaft. Over the centuries, numerous endeavors have been made to find the hidden treasure. So many that the shaft has been nicknamed the money pit because so many people have lost money trying to find out what's in it. Investors as prominent as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, actor Errol Flynn, and John Wayne sank money into finding the treasure. But so far, it has never been found. Some believe Oak Island is where Henry Sinclair secretly buried the Holy Grail. The oak trees would have marked the island for anyone who knew what to look for, and the island was remote enough that it was unlikely anyone would stumble upon the grail on accident. The Walters' theories about the Knights Templar in America haven't been verified. He has shown relics of seemingly European artifacts on his series America Unearthed. These relics include ruins, carvings of ships, and even Christian crosses. But... Without any substantial proof of these relics' legitimacy, all these theories continue to be mere possibilities. As intriguing as it is to consider the likelihood that the runestone is the key to the location of the Holy Grail, like the other theories, we have a lot of circumstantial evidence but little motivation or concrete proof. After examining all the theories, we have to come back to the question of whether the stone's authenticity is what really matters. With stints in multiple museums, the runestone's legacy as a historical artifact has been cemented in spite of the controversy. Whether it's a prank or a relic, it seems likely that the Kensington runestone will outlive us all. As part of Scandinavian-American cultural history, we think that, at this point, it doesn't really matter whether the runestone is a hoax or not. And who knows, maybe in another hundred years, new generations of runologists will examine the stones and find even more clues that are waiting to be discovered. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by D.F.W. Buckingham and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. 